All right, we'll go ahead and get started. Who knows, has any one of you ever read anything from the book of Ecclesiastes? Do you know what Ecclesiastes is? Anyone? The book of Ecclesiastes, most scholars agree that Solomon is the author, and I think that we will see that, and I'll try to point that out as we go along to uh, the Solomonic authorship of the book of Solomon. I mean, a book of Ecclesiastes. Again, there are some modern scholars that have put this into question, but I'm going to proceed on the belief that I, I believe that it is indeed Solomon that wrote this book. So, who is Solomon? Anyone? Who is Solomon? King Solomon was uh, very wise, but he married foreigners and turned to God. That's, that's Solomon. Okay. Solomon's a king. Um. And he is known for what? He was, he was wise. He was a, the, the story about the, um, the, the baby and what mother's yeah. like. Very good, yes. <clears throat> Why was Solomon granted this wisdom, anyone? Where would, where would you go if I said, show me where Solomon was granted the wisdom that he was given? We've actually covered this. It was in... Very good. First Kings. First Kings chapter 3, verse 5, and then again, uh, uh, 3, 5, and 3, 9 through 12. In 3, 5, God tells Solomon in a dream, ask from me whatever you would want. And the summation of it is, Solomon says, because he's very young, he said, I am but a youth. He said, so I would ask for wisdom. Not wisdom that is self-serving, but it was wisdom so he could discern how to rule the people. So God was so impressed with this that he grants him not only that, but he grants him that that he does not ask for. And what we're going to see tonight, I believe, is Solomon, uh, that that he didn't ask for, and didn't wish for, was great wealth and riches, um, and influence. And Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, after he um, lives this life to its fullest, he writes these words for us. So what we're going to do tonight, again, is 12 chapters in Ecclesiastes, and it is one argument. It is one theme that he is building throughout. We're going to just look at the first three chapters, and then the last part of chapter 12, um, he builds on the argument, but we get the kind of what he's driving at in the first three chapters. So, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This uh, word that we get uh, preacher from is the word koleth, which means um, he's the assembler of the covenant, and we translate that preacher. So he is writing this from the perspective of the preacher, and it's almost as in a third person. 
the words of the preacher. Well, this is Solomon. He's talking about himself. But he says the words of the preacher. He will close with that same idea. So that's where we get the uh, word preacher from. It is the uh, covenant assembler. Vanity is also the word habel, which is um, translated vanity. One of the misconceptions of this book is if you read Ecclesiastes, you will think that it is a very depressing book. That everything is meaningless. That's what he said, vanity of vanities. This idea of vanity is not that it is meaningless or worthless, but it's from the perspective that we have, from a human perspective, everything that we see seems meaningless, especially for the unbeliever. However, he is going to drive through this and he is going to uh, highlight for us that believer and unbeliever alike, all of the mundane things of life can seem meaningless. But what is more uh, communicated from this vanity of vanities is it's, it's more of an inscrupulous repetition or an unknowable repetition. That's what inscrutable means. It's just an unknowable factors, things that just, um, again, seem mundane, but in the end, as we will see and as he unpacks for us, God is in control of all of it. He is the sovereign um, God that is in control of every bit of it. So as we continue in chapter 1, we'll only look at uh, verses 3 through 7. And last week, Tim taught on Proverbs. And we'll see in what we're going to cover tonight. Solomon also uses four different Proverbs at, in his teaching as he proceeds through these first three chapters. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This is the question with which he's going to, that he asks and he attempts to answer in this book. <coughs> a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and round goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. What he is driving at here is the cycles of creation. The sun rises and the sun sets. The earth spins, the earth turns. Generations come and generations go. Life and death happens to everyone. It's an endless cycle. And all the streams run to the sea. Yet, the sea is not full. From our perspective, that's what it looks like. Yet God is in control of every bit of it. And then he contrasts in verse 8. All things are full of weariness. Man cannot utter it. Uh, utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. This seeming meaningless cycle, this fulfillment, the rivers and streams run to the sea, yet the sea is not full. The experiences of our life, what he's saying here, what we experience in this life, the circumstances of our life, none of it on a human level is satisfying. We're going to see as Solomon will live every bit of this out 
to its fullest from an earthly perspective and a worldly perspective. Yet in the end, it's not fulfilling. And we're going to find out why. He will answer this question for us. Again, this inscrutable reputation. And by the way, these first 11 verses from uh, 2 through 11 is the first proverb with which he lays out his teaching. 9 through 11, inscrutable repetition. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This cycle... There's nothing new. Can you think of anything? This is, this is an ancient man. Can you think of anything that we experience today that would be new? Surely it's not the same for us as it is was for Solomon, right? He had it better, worse. Modern technology, sure that, surely that's new, right? Would that be new? Yes? No? Maybe? What does it say? Is that new? Is modern technology new? Okay. Like a car. We can travel faster. They were able to travel then. Communication. All of us have probably got one of these. Got televisions to entertain us. They had entertainment then. They had ways of communicating then. We've gotten better at it. We've gotten faster at it. The phone and the internet and computers allows us to lie more rapidly to more people. They still lie then. We can still lie today. Nothing is new. I've used the example before. Um, when God created the earth, when he created everything, he created in six days everything that we see here. Man has never created a thing. These TVs, the phones you have, the cars we drive, everything was present after that sixth day to do what we're able to do today. Man has never created anything. Nothing is new. That's what Solomon says. It's, nothing's new. We just have gotten better at it because of our sin. Technology has just allowed us to do it on a grander scale than we were before. Okay, and we're going to proceed 12 through 14. Here's the first time he's going to uh, say this phrase. And he's got a, there's a series of phrases that Solomon repeats throughout the book. Um, one is going to be under the sun or under heaven. All that means is here on earth. Again, it's the perspective with which we have that we see things. It's a horizontal perspective. There is a vertical and then there's a horizontal. Under the sun is what we perceive. It's our circumstance. Verse 12, I the preacher have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Vanity and striving after wind. What do you think striving after wind means? Exactly. And what is that? 
What would we call that? Is that smart or is that foolish? It's useless too, right? You cannot catch the wind. You can strive after it, but it is, it is, a, um, it is something that you cannot attain. So, <clears throat> excuse me, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Again, you see this language, he's going to repeat it over and over and over again, and you look and you go, this is a depressing book. However, it is not. It is a wise book. It is a book full of wisdom. And he's showing us from our perspective the useless, mundane things of life that even those are governed and given by God. So, he um, gives the second proverb we'll see in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Because of the fall, the curse, man's fall into sin and death has been made crooked. Everything has been made crooked. All of these things that we see have been ruined because of the fall. And we have not got the ability in of ourselves to fix what has been made crooked. We cannot straighten it. However, because of Christ, the believer, Christ makes that that has been made crooked. He straightens it. He repairs the broken relationship, the relationship we lost. Our first parents had a relationship with God that was broke at the, broken at the fall. And Jesus has come, and his work on the cross, his life, that has repaired what we could not fix. 16 through 18, I said in my heart, this is another phrase that we will see him, versions of this phrase, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart had a great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. These next several verses further point to the Solomonic partnership. He's going to continue to unpack, and this is why I believe that it is Solomon that wrote this book. Proverb number three is verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation. Vexation just means frustrations. Okay? The more we know, the more frustrating it is, because on a human perspective, we see that it's... How many of you have seen or heard... The people in our day that are the most famous among us, actors, uh, musicians, they've achieved great wealth, they've got the cars, they've got the houses, they've got the money, they've got everything that this world seems to be able to give them. Yet they're not fulfilled. Why are they not fulfilled? I mean, nothing in this life can satisfy it amazes me that the richest, most famous people that have everything that you would, that you could think of that this world would offer you, and they try to numb it with drugs, alcohol, and some even ultimately wind up taking their life because they are unfulfilled. And it is because they're seeking to fill what can't be filled by anything in this world. 
That's what he's talking about in this proverb. That is the frustration. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. That's, again, seems a pretty depressing book. And we're going to see this, what Solomon experiences does drive him to depression and despair. But uh, his ultimate conclusion is joy. In the chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, I said in my heart, there it is again. What he's saying is I said in my heart, I set out to do. This is what I set my mind to do. And here we're going to see, I, he set his heart to partake of the things of this world to its fullest. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how, to lay, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Solomon sets out to find pleasure from the things of this world. And as we will see, he does so to the fullest, humanly speaking. He determines that laughter is madness and pleasure, what use is it? He seeks to fulfill his life, to cheer himself with wine. And he comes to the realization that it's folly. It's madness. That's, folly is, that's what the Bible is talking about when it speaks of folly. Foolishness or madness. It's folly. So, his heart still guiding him with wisdom, how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven. The children of man. What is the children of man? What do you think he speaks of there? Huh? Go ahead. Say it. Who? Well, I know it not I know y'all are not shy. What is what is what do you think he means by the children of man? Sinners. Yeah. Everyone, mankind, the children of man. He said he made great works. He says, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself, and I made myself gardens, parks, and planted them in them all kind of fruit trees. Solomon, we have record on throughout the Bible and historically. He, as far as wealth goes, was, a, was great in Israel and in the world. He, had, uh, he sought to fulfill his life with, with wine, with laughter, possessions, he planted, he built, he did all of these things from a worldly perspective to the fullest that you could. He said, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kind of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks. More than more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver, gold, and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, <clears throat> and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. Not only did he get singers and, 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 and 
women. He had the best of all of these things. These were not that played the instruments. They were not just, can you play the guitar? Yeah, I can play the guitar. No, these were the best that could play these instruments. These were the best singers. He had the best entertainment. He had the best uh, gardens. He had the best uh, building projects. Um, he built a temple. He built the temple in Jerusalem. He also built himself a temple, which was much larger and uh, more elaborate and, uh, than, the, than God's temple there in Jerusalem. So he did all of these things. But remember, he said, I set my heart to do this. I planned to see if the things of this world could fulfill me. So he continues on, and he goes on in verse 9, he says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. So he doesn't lose it. He's still a wise man. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept in my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. He set his mind to do it. If he saw it and he wanted it, he got it. He kept himself from no pleasure in this world. Again, I, and I want to emphasize the fact that he set his mind to do this. This was something he set out to do. It wasn't just, I'm king of, of, of Israel, and it's just, it goes with the job title, the territory. As king, I just naturally get those things. There's a, some truth to that. But he set his mind to do this to the extent that he did it. And he said, then I consider all that my hands had done and the toil I had experienced in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. All of it, every bit of it, was useless. It was a waste. It did not fulfill him. But Solomon is learning wisdom. One of the things I like to kind of point out here at this point is what he's doing is he asked for wisdom and God granted it. And Casey give the example of, of him ruling there uh, between the, the two mothers that um, were fighting over the one infant died and the other one was alive and one tried to steal it from the other. And his wise ruling in that showed his wisdom. <clears throat> when I became a believer, one of the things I heard often in the church, and I, I think it's a, uh, unfortunate, is you would hear people, kind of pious people, I would say, even maybe, maybe even well-being, well-meaning people, pray for anything that you desire from God. Ask Him what you desire. Just don't, don't pray for patience. I think they're well-meaning, but when we ask for patience, you think God will grant us patience. Or might he put us in situations where we learn patience? Solomon asked for wisdom. And he is given these things that he might learn wisdom. That's how we learn. God make me more of a compassionate person. Will he just make me compassionate just like that? Or will he put me in opportunity or give us opportunities to where we can show compassion to others? That's typically how God works. Can he just make us that way? Absolutely. He transforms dead men into uh, dead sinners into uh, new creations all the time. And he can do anything that he desires. 
but it glorifies him more and we learn from it better when he puts us in situations to mold us into the people that he would have us to be. So pray for patience if you're an impatient person. And as kids, I bet y'all are pretty impatient. I, I kind of remember when I was your age, I was very impatient. Pray for patience. But he's likely going to give you situations to make you more patient. And those of you with siblings, that might be <laughs> build your patience. Okay, moving on in verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, that is also vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. All earthly gain is canceled by death. See, what has been done has already been done. He says, um, the wise and the fool alike will die. Everything, all gain, the king and all of his riches, all come to the same end. The wise man and the fool, the king and the servant, they all meet the same end. We all die. It's this cycle of life. The cycle of life. So this, as he's working through these things, and he sees and he works through these things, he says, so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me because it's vanity and striving after the wind. It's this mundane, unknowable repetitions of life, and it drives him to hatred, and as we'll see in the next section, it's going to drive him to despair. In verse 18, he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Toil just means, what, do you, what, do you, what is toil? What do you think toil means? what he means. And who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool, yet he will be the master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also his vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. For it, this also is vanity and a great evil. This idea of inheritance. Everything that you work for, 
whether you're a wise man and gain a lot of possessions or a fool and, and have hardly anything, you will die, we all will die, and someone else is going to get our stuff. This drives him to despair. Because he says, who knows? I have been very wise in gaining all of these things, and when I die, chances are, it's going to fall to someone else as an inheritance. They're going to get my stuff, and they may be a fool and waste all that I have worked for. What is his summation? Again, it's all vanity. It's all striving after the wind. It is meaningless. It does not fulfill. And then when he decides that all of the gain that he has gotten, and he realizes, I can't take it with me. I'm going to die one day, and I will leave it to a fool. And again, if we know the history of uh, Israel, Solomon was the last king of the United Kingdom of Israel. After Solomon, during his reign, the kingdom split into northern southern kingdom. And it, there's a lot of fools in the divided kingdom. Um, so anything that was gained by Israel and by King Solomon was squandered and wasted. It, it wound up in foreign nations' hands, many of them. <clears throat> Verse 22, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw from the, I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting. Only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. He begins to show how enjoyment, any enjoyment we find in this life is from God. This is where he kind of begins to see the light, so to speak. That all of this vanity, all of it is from God, and this is where we find our joy. When we see the mundane of this life, when we can learn to be thankful for the mundane, why do we ask and pray before we eat? Are we doing it because it's just something we do? Or are we truly thankful for the food that we get to eat? Because it's a gift from God. Every time you wake up, He woke you up. Everything from the smallest thing to the greatest um, significant thing in your life, that is a gift from God and it is from His hand. And we will also see that even the difficulties in this life is from Him. And He kind of hints at this as well. And He says, even this is vanity. Why is it vanity? Because unless you know God, unless you have been born again in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of it is vanity. That is the only thing that can fulfill you. Even Basically what he's saying is, do you think uh, you eat a good steak? The believer enjoys it? Do you think the unbeliever enjoys a good steak? He does. The good in this life is to the believer and the unbeliever. 
that is the, just the kind of common grace that God gives. You see a beautiful sunset and it moves you, it can move the unbeliever as well. These things are all from God. It is only when we see it in a redemptive way that it is truly from His hand and it is a grace to us because it points us to Him and how glorious He is. All of it reflects should, for us should reflect back to Him. When you have that good state, God, thank you that you've given me the ability to enjoy something because I don't, I don't deserve to enjoy anything in this life. He does not have to give us enjoyment in the mundane things of just eating. He does not have to give us uh, awe in the creation as we see it, where there's a sunset or a mountain range or whatever it is, the ocean standing on the beach, anything that moves you, that's a gift and that's a grace. He doesn't have to give us that. For the believer, we should be thankful. should be thankful for everything that we get. When things began to seem rote and repetitious and mundane for us, that's when we need to look to Him more. Help me to be more thankful. Help me to see your goodness in the mundane. That's what He's getting at. <clears throat> and finally, in this last chapter we're going to go through, as He kind of builds on His argument, in chapter 3, he talks about there's a time for everything. Y'all are far too young to know this, but this entire section from verse 2 to verse 8 was lifted by a group called the Birds in 1965. And they made a hit song, and they just copied these words straight out of the Bible and put it to music, and it was a hit song. And it's absolutely true. It's, and it's not a bad song because it comes from the Bible. So the lyrics in it are good. Chapter 3. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. Did any of you decide to be born? No. None of us did. did they? Okay. So this is not something that we are doing. What he's saying is there's a time for everything. Everything in this life has its purpose and its time and all of it is given by God. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. Surely there's not a time to kill, is there? Is that really? A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. This is the fourth little proverb that he has talked about in the first three chapters. It's just a way of teaching. Basically, he's summing up so far what he has said that he has experienced. There's a time for all of this. A time for everything. This is just another proverb with which he uses throughout this book to teach. Verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? He's asking this question again. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. 
Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already, that which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Eternity has been put into man's heart. What, what do you think that means? I mean, how, what does eternity in man's heart, what does that mean? Say that again. I can't. God is eternity. Okay. Do you think that there's instinctively in man we know that this is not all there is? We instinctively know that. He put this into our heart. The unbeliever knows this is not all there is. He shakes his fist at the God that created everything. And he will even admit, the, the honest one will, be, will admit that, the honest atheist will, will say that his worldview has no hope in it. Because in this life, this is it. You live, you die, and you're no more. There's, there's nothing else. And they will, the honest atheist will admit that. But all they're doing is taking what God has made known. He's put eternity in our hearts. Romans 1 says that in the creation testifies to him. We know that there is a God. Mankind and humanity has always known this. The ones that say that they don't believe it are suppressing the truth that is obvious. And that's what the Bible teaches us. But you see this transition he begins to make as he's worked through the mundane, he's lived what this life, what this world can offer, and he's found that it is all vanity, he begins to see and to unpack for us that it, it's only through the knowledge of God that you can enjoy these things, that we should rejoice. And the, the part of it that is difficult for us to grasp is, he just said it in the previous eight verses, the good as well as the bad come from God. Is that right or wrong? So the bad circumstances that you find yourself in, He give those? Yes, He did. One of the things that we get in trouble for as believers, again, I think it's well-meaning, but when we start making excuses for God, I use an example. Y'all probably don't know who He is, but there was a governor in Arkansas Actually, there was two. Uh, one became president of the United States. He said he was a Christian, but he lived a life that did not testify to that. He, his testimony, his, his, his life's testimony betrayed what he said he was. So I don't believe that he was, but it's not my choice. There's another, also another governor of Arkansas that was an ordained minister, is an ordained minister, a Baptist minister, in fact, and there was um, 
tornadoes that ripped through his state while he was governor. And um, there was legislation tried to pass to help repair and rebuild what was destroyed in this tornado. Well, the language of the bill said, act of God. And this ordained Baptist minister refused to sign it because he said, my God would not do that. Is that well-meaning or ignorant? Yes, to both. If God didn't do it, who did? And if God couldn't stop it, is that, that should frighten us. So that tornado, that was an act of God. Every tragedy is an act of God. He could have stopped it. We see it in the testimony of many saints throughout the Old Testament. We just had uh, the very first book in this section that we call the wisdom literature we're going through right now. Job. Job was plagued by many, many different things. And the Bible clearly says that God allowed Satan to do these things to him. He put restraints on Satan and what he could not do, but he allowed the calamity to come to Job. Why? For the glory of God. Was it for Job's good? Yeah, it was for Job's good, but it was also for God's glory. Joseph, his brothers sold him into slavery. You think in the 20-something years that Joseph's been sold into slavery that he might have gone, what is God doing in this? He was given a dream. And that dream is what drove his brothers to get mad at him and sell him. We know the end of the story. He looks at his brothers many years down the road and he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So we don't have to get God off the hook for the tragedies in this life. It's what we cannot see. That's what Solomon's kind of unpacking for us. Our perspective, we see horizontally. It's only when we begin to look vertically and see things vertically, and only the believer can do that. Only through the God's Word and inspired by the Holy Spirit can we begin to see this life in a vertical direction. Otherwise, we tend to see everything horizontally and how it affects us. We can't see how this could possibly be for our good. But the, the Word of God says that everything is meant for our good and His glory. There's testimony throughout Scripture that, that, that testifies to these things. The last part of chapter 3, let's read that, is uh, chapter, uh, verse, starting verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Let's stop right there for a second. <clears throat> it says that God is testing them. Is testing and tempting the same thing? No. Okay. So, in this book, if you read it, I encourage everyone to read it. We're just, gonna, we're just skimming the surface tonight. This is a book full of wisdom from God. And there's going to be, seems to be things even within the content, uh, contents of these 12 chapters of this book that seem to contradict themselves. And then there's things that if we just look on the surface in the Bible that seem to contradict themselves. But do they contradict them, themselves? 
No. Why? How do we know that? You're right. But how do we know that? It's faith. But this is ultimately who wrote this? God. Do you think he would contradict himself? What would that make him? You know, I, I could say a contradiction could be a little bit of a lie, right? It's not possible. If there seems to be a contradiction, the fault lies not with God, it is with our understanding. We need to, we need to study more and pray more that we should be able to understand and, understand and discern where it seems to be a problem for us. He does not tempt, but He does test. And His testing is meant for our, as the believer, is meant for our refinement. For the unbeliever... It's judgment or to drive them to repentance. But he does test the children of man. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? From a human perspective, we all go the same place as the animals. We're no better than they are. We breathe the same air they breathe. We live in the same world, the same planet. We all live, we all die, and we go in back to the, from dust we came, from dust we return. What is the difference? That our lot, our toil, our work, our labor in this life, we rejoice again. Why? Because it is from God. The believe, unbeliever cannot, they cannot come to this determination apart from God intervening. His Holy Spirit entering their life and giving them new life. Only the believer can see these things. And even as a believer, I think some of the adults will testify to this, it's hard sometimes. We have to be constantly reminded that the troubles and the difficulties in this life, it's not always easy to see or accept. But they are from God and we should rejoice in them. The Apostle Paul says, from prison... In Philippi, I have learned to be content in whatever my circumstance. In, in, in plenty and in want, his contentment. What is that? That contentment is the same as joy. He counts it all joy for the sake of Christ. He says this from prison, for preaching the gospel. That's what he's driving at. On a horizontal level, all of the mundane seems exactly that. It's unknowable repetition. But when we begin to see with eyes vertically, heavenward, and we see everything from God's hand meant for our good and His glory, then we can begin to rejoice. And this is a, it's, it's a truth that the Scripture teaches, and it's a, we would do well to learn this there's one verse, one, one section that I want uh, someone to look up. So who wants to read? Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Who wants to get it? Anybody? Go ahead, Casey. 
Matthew 22, 20, 36-40. <clears throat> We're going to wrap up. In chapter 12, go ahead and flip to chapter 12 if you still got your Bibles open. We're going to look at verse 9 through the end. This is how Solomon closes the book. Verse 9, wait, I'll let you know. Besides being wise, the preacher, again, this is Solomon writing it, it's third person. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging. Many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. That one shepherd is God. God give him the words. This is God's truth. This is God's wisdom. It is all from him. My son, be aware, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Basically what he's saying here is we can read all of the books on religion and theology that we want to, but the unbeliever will not come to a saving faith apart from the Word of God. He can know a lot about God and be as lost as the the atheist that has no care whatsoever, that is shaking his fist at God. It is a weariness. We cannot find even satisfaction in, in the worldly books that we might try to study. It is only through God's Spirit in the life of the believer that we can find joy in the knowledge that He gives us. And then he closes it. What does he say? Verse 13. The end of the matter. Everything that we've talked about so far. Everything I've unpacked for you. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment. With every secret secret thing. Whether good or evil. Go ahead Casey. Read that. Matthew 22 passage. What? 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the command, which is the great command of the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord, love your Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the first command. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now I will get out to 40, right? Hmm? The 40? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's it. Okay. So what he is, what everything that Solomon has unpacked for us, the end of the matter is this. Fear God and obey his commandments. And Casey, I had him read that because he was asked, Jesus was asked, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Those sum up. That's a summation of all of the law. Okay? How are we able to do these things? For the unbeliever, it is impossible. For the unbeliever, it is impossible. But the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. 
Again, this is another thing you'll hear sometimes, again, well-meaning believers say, fear is not really fear. No, it is fear. It is a reverent fear. We should fear before a holy God because He is. That's what it means. We should fear Him, him that can cast us into hell and judgment. He's going to judge every deed. That's how Solomon closes it. Fear God. Keep His commandments. Because God's going to judge every deed, good and evil. So for the believer, how do we escape this judgment? All of these things point to Jesus. That's what this Emmaus Road series is about. For the believer, we escape this judgment and are able to keep God's commandments because of Christ, because of His work on the cross and the redemptive, His redemptive work. We are indwelled by God the Holy Spirit to do these things. It is impossible for man to do in his own. But because of Christ, we are able as the believer to do these things. Fear God. Keep His commandments because He will bring everything into judgment. That should fear, uh, scare people. It should scare us. However, because of Christ, we do not have to fear that judgment. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for this book. I thank you for the wisdom that you have given us. Father, I pray that you will help us to discern these things. I pray, Father, that, um, that your truth was clearly communicated through my many inadequacies. And I just pray that, um, that you will help these students as we continue through this series. Help us, Father, to see Jesus in your scriptures, in the, your word. Help us to see your sovereignty and your glory in these things. And we ask this in Christ's name.